Well, before I begin, uh, Tom uh, uh, reminded me that uh, we all need a reminder about um, uh, helping out our, our uh, kids' church uh, workers. So uh, we're going to have a session of explaining philosophy and going through the material that we'll be studying um, forthcoming here. Um, we're going to have a meeting at the Gammons at 12 o'clock, or 12 o'clock, on October the 12th, that's the Saturday, at 7 o'clock p.m., uh, to discuss those things. So if you're currently a preschool uh, teacher or aide, please come to that, uh, try to re reserve that date. Uh, or if you're interested, uh, every week Lee begs for more workers, and so if you're interested, uh, go ahead and feel free to show up to that meeting. And if you have any questions, I'm sure you can see Tom or Mary. Those are the go-to people there. I am not. Okay. All right. Um, well, before I begin, I just want to thank um, the elders for the opportunity to do this. Um, the other elders are just a gift to this church. Um, there's a camaraderie between the or among the elders that is very special, and uh, so uh, continue to pray for us, the the elder team, as we um, struggle to lead and shepherd this church well under our great shepherd. So thank you guys for giving me this opportunity. And uh, I want to thank uh, you guys for being a family to my wife and myself and my little girl. Um, you guys have shown love to us. Uh, Lene's family actually lives in Minnesota, so all the more she sees you guys as her family here. And so thank you for loving us and showing us Jesus together. Um, it's actually through a relationship that I've had with uh, one of you guys that uh, I've begun to put a lot of thoughts into what we're going to talk about here today, and that is, what's significant in life? What is it in life that really matters? What ought I to be devoting myself to, to know, to pursue in life that I might not waste it? Um, if it's true that we're all sowing seeds of the selves that we will be in the future. What kind of seeds ought we to be sowing? What kind of lives should we be living? What kind of desires should we be desiring now for our future? And that's got me thinking and reading. And um, you'll notice throughout this sermon, a lot of influences come from a guy named C.S. Lewis. So you'll notice that. You'll notice a lot of um, scriptural ideas, um, especially from 2 Corinthians, that have been going through my head. But I'm going to argue today that those things which are of most benefit to us, of greatest value to us, are actually um, treasured in a world that we cannot yet see, that's invisible, and which is all the more difficult to remember that's there because it's not in our face every day without um, help. So, my argument today is that we ought to live for, because it has the greatest benefit in this world to come, a world that we cannot see, but a world that is real nonetheless. So to do that, we're going to start by considering a couple basic observations. These should be no-brainers for you, but they uh, need to be said. Uh, the first is 
that it seems that God has put inside the hearts of men an itch for discovery, um, to see things that aren't yet seeable, to uncover things that are hidden. And throughout history, uh, this, this truth manifests itself. Uh, for instance, um, people didn't know where a sickness came from. They're, I wonder where this comes from. So they started cranking the wheels of their imagination, and, and, and sure enough, uh, tools were developed in this endeavor, and microscope was developed, and, and wouldn't you know it, um, from the 16th century, uh, well, 15th century really, onward, um, men were able to peer into the, the world of the virus and the bacteria and come to understand things that they had never seen before but was uh, nonetheless real and intriguing and helpful uh, for conquering disease. Similarly, uh, around the same time, uh, telescopes were really um, developed to say and to see, um, speak into the, the world of, of the, the, the cosmos. These are not just twinkling dots when I look up into a clear sky. These are massive galaxies. These are massive planets, stars. Um, and, and indeed, uh, the, the, the very things that we peer into in the sky are not smaller than us. And I know that this seems pedantic, but it's true. They're, they're much larger than the solar system, the Milky Way galaxy that we live in. They're incredibly vast, and so we, we gained this understanding of who we were in the universe based upon trying to see what we couldn't see prior to. Um, let's see here, what's another one? Okay, so uh, the um, world of the infrared. Uh, we, we couldn't quite see in the dark, and we endeavored to try to see in the dark, and I'm sure any of you with kids have these really cool uh, monitors that can see in the dark. Well, that's thanks to infrared technology. We can now peer into um, heat patterns and this kind of thing. Something that we couldn't yet see, or couldn't see before, but now can. It's an interesting um, study through the history of, of the human scientific realm. But there's one observation that has eluded us as men, and that might seem apparent at this point, and that is We've never seen the supernatural, and by definition, you can't see the supernatural. It's impossible. It's beyond the natural realm. So this has really frustrated uh, men a lot. Uh, a lot of work has obviously been done in trying to peer into the world unseen, um, but it, it just seems quite elusive to the West in particular. And because it's seemingly proved fruitless, there's been a wide-sweeping movement over the past 150 years or so to come to the conclusion that, uh, well, if I cannot see it, if I can't observe it with my senses, then it must not indeed be there. It must be a figment of my imagination and nothing more. And this uh, belief not only has gained traction in the West, um, but it's really bled into... Um, uh, just the, the worldview that dominates the, the culture, the, the internet age, which all truth is now given to everyone. Um, we give our resources now to only those things which we can see, touch, taste, feel, smell, whatever the other senses are, if I'm forgetting any. 
And unfortunately, that mindset has bled into the church. Uh, We are not islands apart from the culture that we live in, and there has indeed been this constant exposure to the allurement of this worldview. This worldview is popularly known as materialism, uh, properly named. All that exists is material, that which I can put my senses around. And while we might not have um, rewritten our personal theology after being constantly exposed to this worldview, many of us have allowed it to creep into our practical theology. Uh, We might not go home and take out our tome that we've written of our personal theology um, and uh, pull out a few pages and rewrite them, but we might live a little bit differently than we otherwise would have. Uh, I'm going to list a number of value statements. And as we read these value statements, try to evaluate how you've processed uh, your own values this past week. Um, And I'm by no means saying that uh, I am excluded from this list. In fact, I'm the one who made this list. So you'll notice a bunch of things that might reflect um, me, okay? Uh, once again, I, uh, uh, I want to also mention, I should say, that the, the value statements, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be pre- uh, comparing two things, okay, in each statement. And I'm not saying that the, the one is evil and the other good. In fact, they might be both good. But what I am saying is that one has a greater value which might govern the other, okay? So keep that in mind as we read this list. Picture yourself and do so with grace um, because we're not perfect, but here we go. Okay, so this past week, have the comforts in the next 20 to 30 years been of more concern than the comfort that might be fancied when we're dead? Okay, this presumes a biblical worldview, by the way. Okay, so presuming that there is a life hereafter, Have the comforts of the next 20 or 30 years been of more concern than the comfort that might be fancied in the world to come? Do present uh, judgments set upon me by my peers at work or school concern me more than God's evaluation of my life? Do rewards promised to me by my credit card company, and surely we have all gotten those mailers, Uh, eclipse the excitement of rewards promised to me in the age to come. I just signed up for a credit card, by the way, so that is definitely on my list. Dave Ramsey would be angry with me. Um, Installing the new Apple operating system, the iOS 7 last month, was it of greater preoccupation to me than meditating on the glories of the cross? You can totally tell that this is my list. Geeky nerd. Um, Planning for the next family vacation becomes more important than planning for my kids' maturity in the faith. Men, how your wife looks dwarfs the importance of how well your wife loves in her sanctification. Talking to Siri is infinitely more enjoyable and feels way less foolish than talking with the invisible God. 
Browsing YouTube or Facebook is more stimulating than perusing God's word. Busying ourselves at work to make money sounds like a much better use of time than busying ourselves with the body here at North Point. And lastly, in no particular order, we take inventory of our bank accounts more often than we take inventory of our souls. Testing ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. Is that of any concern to you? So, without pronouncing any moral judgments on these things or um, the like, we're just giving statements here. Does that, do, 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 have those things been a part of your life the past week? If so, it might be an indication that materialism has crept into your practical theology. And again, I'm not saying this um, without being touched. The good news is, in, uh, an observation here, that uh, the Bible offers a, a, a good corrective for this flawed worldview. I'm not going to argue against materialism. I'm going to assume that we all bring the import of its destructive um, and false teaching in our lives here. So I'm not going to argue against it necessarily, but I'm going to, I'm going to give the, the biblical recommendation for how we ought to live. So the, the Bible actually purports that there are two worlds, uh, one of which we live and move and have our being, and another world which actually purports as a more significant world uh, that we have never seen. Uh, whose world we've never stepped in. So we're going to do that by taking um, a quick overview of the entire Bible. Isn't that fun? Um, so we're going we're to do a quick biblical theology of the significance of the invisible world, okay? To um, give us a foundation to build um, a fight against materialism. So we'll start from the beginning, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God made the world. Uh, we're told in further revelation, especially in Hebrews, that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was made not of what was seen, but of the invisible. This truth presupposes that God himself, the one who made the world, is not of the world. All things were created by him and by him, no thing was created that was created. So God himself was not created. He was the uncaused causer of all that we see. Moving on, uh, we hear that Abraham, in Genesis, we read, actually, we read that uh, he gets this divine promise from God, this invisible God he's never seen. Promise of of uh, uh, multitudes of, of people that would be descendants from him. Uh, again, he died before he saw this promise fulfilled. A land, we're told in Hebrews, he looked for a land, a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Later on, Moses, uh, we read, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be uh, mistreated with the people of God, an eternal entity, 
rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ in identification with his people. Greater wealth, okay, we're seeing value statements all over the place, than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. When we move on to the historical books, uh, Joshua 1 begins with this character named Rahab, and she decides against all odds to side with this ragamuffin band, the Israelite nation, uh, when she is perfectly secure in a visible, tangible stronghold named Jericho. And we're, see, we, we're shown later on that she's rewarded for her decision. Later on, David, the king of the Israelite nation, desires to build a dwelling place for God, this invisible God. He desires to honor him by building this uh, temple for him. And God rewards him for that desire. He actually doesn't allow him to do that. But uh, God rewards him for his, his desire by promising him a house, a household, really, that would have no end, a kingdom upon which, or of which, uh, the whole earth would not only be blessed, but who would rule over his enemies. So again, we're seeing that people who make an investment in the world unseen are blessed. When the kingdom is on the brink of doom, and this, this is actually one of my most of the um, stories in the Bible are very intriguing, but this one just really catches me. So why don't we turn here to um, 2 Kings 6. This is just a really intriguing story. Um, to give you some background, there's this king uh, who's fighting against this Davidic, Davidic king, uh, David. So you're, it's, it's interesting that God gives these promises, and then it seems like the whole world is against um, um, these promises fulfilling or being fulfilled. Uh, and this is actually a story of of, of that exact scenario. So, this kingdom of David is on the brink of doom, and Elisha, one of the prophets, is uh, huddled up in a city. Uh, the city is Dothan, and the king who's fighting against him is, is um, the king of, of Aram. And in 2 Kings 6, verses 14 through 17, we read, so he, King uh, Aram, sent there to Dothan, where, where Elisha was holed up, horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God, so when Elisha's servant, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. Now look at good. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Obviously, this guy was not a materialist. It doesn't make any sense. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his, my servant's eyes, that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. Well, what did he see? And behold, the mountain was full 
of horses and chariots of fire all around. That's cool. It makes me wonder what's around us, even this morning. A similar occurrence is found uh, later on in the book of 2 Kings, uh, 2 Kings 19. And in summary, uh, basically another kingdom, again, this is just a, a story of, of people trying to thwart the promises of God. The Assyrian kingdom comes against uh, King Hezekiah, who happens to be the king, the Davidic king of Israel. He surrounds Jerusalem, the capital, uh, where the temple of God is. And he's got at least 105,000 soldiers that surround the city. This is a terrible army. But King Hezekiah prays to this unseen God, something a materialist might not do at first. And he says, Oh Lord, our God, save us, please, from the king of Assyria and from his hand. That all, why? That all of the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And sure enough, King, the king of um, Hezekiah, um, or the king of, of uh, Israel, finds that later on, this invisible God slays all 185,000 soldiers on his behalf without his assistance. Moving on to the poetic books, uh, briefly we see um, uh, the writers stating that a life of ignoring the unseen, Yahweh himself, the commands that he gives, his good law and covenant, to ignore him is a foolish endeavor and has dire consequences in the here and now and in the age to come. The prophets claim otherworldly inspiration when they state over and over again, thus says the Lord, as they, as they uh, uh, pronounce divine judgment on the world for the consequences of its sins. The Gospels are obviously packed with these kinds of ideas. First, John the Baptist, and then later on, Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of God has come. It's broken through the world that is seen and has introduced people to a kingdom that's not seen. And unfortunately, most who are exposed to this truth don't have eyes to see it, understand it, or comprehend it. So the whole of the Bible seems to be painting a picture of reality that you and I can't see. It is, in that sense, supernatural. But a reality that, is none, that nonetheless makes sense of everything that we see. Okay? Again, I'm not going to prove this dualistic view of the world, that there are two realities. But the Bible makes sense of the one that we see based upon the one that we cannot see. And nowhere is this category more clearly laid out for us, and this is going to be the, the, the cornerstone scripture for us today, uh, than the book of 2 Corinthians and the chapter being number 4. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you want to turn there, uh, it's, it's very clearly laid out this significance of the world unseen and how it impacts the world that we do see and hopefully wakes us up from some of our 
misconstrued ideas, our misapplications of practical theology as we've been affected by the materialism that pervades our culture. So what's the background here? Um, Paul is writing actually his fourth letter. I know it's called 2 Corinthians, but it's actually his fourth letter uh, to a great cosmopolitan city, uh, uh, the, the one named Corinth, thus, thus the book's name. Um, it's located in modern-day Greece. It's kind of sandwiched in between two waterways, so a lot of people pass through it. Hustle, bustle of the city um, allowed a lot of exchanges of ideas. And we actually find, find out in 1 Corinthians that the church that was there was quite immature and had um, twisted a lot of good ideas uh, to suit their own purposes. And a lot of it had been mixed in with some of the other ideas that had been purported by um, the thinking of the age. Um, so Paul keeps writing to them. He doesn't give up on them. He's happy to spend and be spent for them, he writes in Second Corinthians. He loves them regardless of harm or ridicule that may ensue in his pursuit of the people in the church. He's undergone mental and spiritual anguish for their souls. He's undergone physical hardship to reach them with the truth. And he's been mocked by false teachers that were in the church. And in fact, he's been disbelieved by some of the Corinthians. Has to go to great lengths to try to prove that what he is saying is true. And so what motivates Paul to behave contrary to conventional wisdom? Conventional wisdom would say, well, they're apparently not getting it. Apparently, the Spirit is not strong in their lives. So why is he willing to love them unconditionally and pursue them in the face of what he's seen? Our answer comes in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 4. Okay, so why pursue in face of all apparent contradiction the goodness of the Corinthian church? So he says, we don't lose heart. Well, why? Because though our outer self is wasting away, this is exactly the, 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 the cup that the materialist would fill of value and worth. If my outer self is wasting away, what's the point? Well, even with that being the case, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us, is useful for obtaining for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory value statement as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen this is where we put our hope in things unseen for the things that are seen are transient passing away but the things that are unseen are eternal so here paul is his body wasting away in service of the advance of the kingdom. But it is a means of gaining an eternal, significant glory for the Corinthian church. So Paul writes in an attempt to shake them, and consequently us, awake 
to the bigger meta-narrative of the Bible. A meta-narrative in which all of our lives transpire. There is an eternal weight of glory that we must live for. One that surpasses our current experience. He's begging us to do the math. 75 years on a cursed planet that's passing away is not worth to be compared to the experience on a remade planet in God's presence forever. This present affliction is momentary and therefore is light. Future unseen glory is eternal and therefore significant. Now, are we stating that the things that we see, touch, taste, feel, smell, experience, hear, are evil, okay? And so that would be uh, maybe a conclusion that would be reached. And, and I don't think that's the biblical ideal or worldview or what's purported by the Bible. For in fact, did not Jesus himself take on flesh? He entered into the three dimensions that we live in, this temporal state. He entered into it so that we might have salvation. What is, what is the, the death of Christ? It is a demonstration that Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. He became Emmanuel. So no, that is not the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is not stating, stating that flesh or physical reality is evil and spiritual reality is good. That's, that's not what's being stated. But what Paul does state here is that light momentary affliction in the present is useful. It is preparing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. What we do in this life does matter. And in fact, the Bible is replete with uh, um, promises that what we do here will either be punished or rewarded. It's significant. But we are to use what we've been given here to impact what we will be given in the future state. Is this a, isn't this what Jesus commanded on the Sermon on the Mount? He said that we are to live proactively here in the temporary state of affairs in order to lay up for ourselves treasures in a world unseen. So practically, what are some tangible categories that we can invest into here in this world for the next? What ought we to have our, our eyes set on? What kind of seeds ought we to be sowing for the world to come? I think Hebrews 12 gives us a good um, listing, a good sampling of those realities. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 states that we, the redeemed, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. You'll notice that many of the things that we're going to read here are invisible things. They're things that you have not interfaced with. You have never touched, seen, smelled. So we've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable, uh, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, 
and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So there's three basic categories that I want to distill uh, what we listed here into. So what, we can, what can we be living for? What can we invest into currently? Well, we can invest into God himself, knowing him. We can invest into knowing and holding on to his promises that are found in his word, secondly. And thirdly, we can invest into the souls of men. So let's start with God himself. He is the true treasure of the church. He is its ultimate reward. And this is no mercenary affair for us. It's not as if we um, uh, follow Jesus because we are, get, to, get to experience a, a heavenly eternity apart from pain. Um, rather, the, the idea that's stated in the Bible is, is um, maybe best illustration by this. So men, think about your wives. Okay? When you were dating your wife, why did you desire to marry her? Okay? And hopefully, uh, you did not want to marry her because of her money. Okay? You didn't want to marry her. I heard Mary just say something, so she must be rich. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so you didn't marry her because of her money. You didn't marry her because of the, the social elevation that you would gain because of it. You wanted to marry her because you wanted her. You wanted to spend your life with her. You wanted to enter into a covenant, to experience life with her, to share joy, sadness. You wanted to get her. Similarly, our desire to get God, to enter into a covenantal relationship with Him in which he is our God and we are his people, it's a legitimate reward for us to, to pursue. It's the ultimate reward for the church. God is the ancient of days. He's the triune one, the alpha and omega, of whom there is no beginning and no end. He is the one being who can look all other moral creatures in the eye and command their submission to know him is to know life beyond this life. To reject him is to know a death beyond the grave. To seek him is to seek that which is above and to love and be loved by the invisible God is to experience a peace that surpasses the comprehension of the materialist. He is the cause behind all that is and he is the end for which all created things exist. He is the one true value in reality. To chase other gods would be idolatry. To chase him would be good. So what's another category that we can spend our lives for in pursuit of? Well, we can spend our lives for pursuing the promises of God. Again, a category unseen, yet eternal and real nonetheless. 
The Bible states in 1 Peter that all flesh is like grass. The grass withers and fades away, but the Word of God endures forever. And all of the promises that have been given in the, the, the Bible, in Scripture, by God, are a yes in Christ. As Christ lives, they will surely come to pass. But what about the materialistic jeers that we might hear from our world? They're described in 2 Peter chapter 3. They say, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? Where is this inbreaking of the invisible on the visible? For ever since the fathers died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter quickly counters, saying that a word from God created all that's seen, and a word from God judged all that was seen according to his word. And that same word that is sure is storing up fire against heaven and earth for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Don't consider the temporary delay from God as slackness or apathy. Consider it grace. By way of contrast, the promises of God extended to believers were promised a future in the city of the living God, Mount Zion, where the kingdom of God will blossom into its fullest expression. God promises that he won't forget us here. We're not left on this rock by ourselves. He will come back for us so that where he is, we may be also. Paul writes that no eye has seen and no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These are exciting promises. And these things described here are but the first fruits of the unalterable, unseen promises of God to us. We will have ages and ages of bliss with our God, tides of, of elevated goodness and grace in His presence. May this motivate us to struggle and endure in the present suffering. The third category that we can put stake in is the eternal souls of men. As you survey your present sphere of influence, your coworkers, your classmates, your family, we must realize and come to know the import of their eternal nature. Surely, their present physical bodies will wear out, they'll erode, decay, they'll perish, along with their wealth and social status, and even their memory. But their soul is indestructible. I'm uh, always reminded of this idea. I've worked at Bob Evans for a bit. I loved working at Bob Evans. Um, if you ever went into the, this is crazy, if you ever went into the Westerville Bob Evans between like 2000 and Four in 2007, you might have seen me, I was the host there, um, uh, right off the highway. And I loved it, I loved greeting people and, and got to interact with a lot of people there. So I got to experience a lot of worldviews, because um, we had regulars, about a third of our people were regulars, so I got to know them really well. 
And one of our favorite regulars, his name was Doc. Okay, he went by Doc. He was an Austrian immigrant um, who was about 85 years old, and he came in every day. Um, he would drive himself and then kind of hobble over to the host table and then be seated. Actually, we wouldn't seat him. He'd, he'd do his own thing. Um, but everybody knew him there, and so I, I would sit down during uh, the non-busy times. Um, I didn't say that. Um, so I'd sit down during the non-busy times and, and chat with him. And I got to know his worldview, and it's actually quite indicative of, or telling, of the end of the materialist's worldview. So he was 85, his body was in a terrible shape, he was crunched over, um, he could barely keep his head up. And during one of our conversations, he told me, Greg, I miss it so much. And I said, what do you miss? He's like, and he, he, he pulls out from his wallet a picture of this really built dude um, on a beach. And um, it was an old tattered photo. And he said, do you know who that is? I said, uh, no. He said, that's me. I said, wow, that's, you were huge. And, uh, and he just got this look on his face, like he had told 100 people, but it still felt um, as stinging as it did the first time he told the first person. He said, I've lost it all. I'm not the man I was. And uh, so all of his value was in the scene. It was in what he could see and taste and touch. His value was not in the other world, and it led him to despair. It's a sad story. But, in stark contrast to the end of the materialist's life, God has promised that all men will be resurrected, some to a resurrection of life and others to a resurrection of judgment. Um, C.S. Lewis argues that it is the supreme good for us to care deeply for our neighbors, for their potential glory that might be enjoyed, in spite of everything that we might see about them in the present. He says, it is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day very well be a creature, which if you saw him now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if only in your worst nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other, helping Doc or helping you to one of those possibilities. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play or leisure, and all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, which do have quite a good long shelf life, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors 
or everlasting splendors. End quote. Indeed, it is for our future resurrected body that the glories or horrors of that body which must motivate us to treat with dignity our neighbors, our co-workers, our children, and our spouses. To love them with the truth of the gospel is to truly love them, that they might know the eternal weight of glory of the final approval of God. So we've looked at the issue and what we ought to rather invest our, uh, ourselves into. So rather than materialistic worldview uh, 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 values, we ought to invest into at least these three unseen realities. God, the Word and promises of God, and the souls of men. But how should we then live? Well, firstly, we ought to steep ourselves in a biblical worldview by careful meditation on the Word. Our weapons against this deceptive worldview of materialism are not of this world, but they are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We've put down arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And that's why Lee, week after week, and that's why you and I, week after week, submit ourselves to its teaching. You may never hear, and I have not yet, hear large explosions during a sermon. You may never see bright flashes of light or feel strokes of heat. But nevertheless, you can be sure that as the word is preached, God is unleashing unlimited power. He strengthens his people with the most powerful force in the universe according to his glorious might for our endurance and patience with joy. Not only must we hear the word of God in the corporate setting, but we also must bathe in it in our personal devotion. We ought to daily cleanse our minds by the washing of the word from the self-deception of materialism. It is through the Word that the Spirit works, enlivening our souls to the eternal reality, reality which is of most importance. Just think of this. The Bible taken seriously, if you really wrap yourself into the biblical worldview, the Bible taken seriously would purport the following. There is a host of an angelic realm that you have never seen, real nonetheless, that does battle, real battle, with a host of demons who literally haunt this planet and who struggle to take down the sons of men. And there are billions of men and women from generations past waiting the final day of the Lord. Think of this. The majority of people that could be seen if you scoured this planet do not represent or do not equal a greater number than all of created moral agents. Most of them you cannot see. This is what the Bible purports. Impossible, says the materialist as he whispers in your head. 
This fanciful tale that the Bible describes is but myth. But again, to borrow from Lewis, the Spirit replies, Do you think I'm trying to uh, to weave a spell when you read the Bible? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as inducing them. And you have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake you from the enchantment of, of worldliness, of materialism. This is that's great. It's pre- precisely for this reason that we've got to familiarize ourselves daily with the biblical worldview and, and experience the wakefulness to the world unseen, to grasp the eternal weight of that world. Not only do we need to steep ourselves in the world, but we need to build strong relationships within the body of Christ. In this world, we are sheep among wolves. The slanderous dragon and his demonic host, again, this is real. I'm not making this up. It's devouring. That realm, he is devouring and he is using every weapon of evil against the children of God's kingdom. One of his most powerful poisons in the West has been the enchantment of materialism. And if we cut ourselves off from the rest of the sheep, the chances of us being devoured are all the more. Therefore, we must take care, lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart leading, uh, leading us to fall away from the living God. We must exhort each other every day so that none of us is hardened by sin's evil deception. We must pour our energies into living with one another. We must not neglect to meet together as a community, especially in light of the reality that Christ will soon appear a second time, bringing salvation to those who wait eagerly for his appearing. We must endure in our belief, and the church is vital to the plan that God has prescribed to do just that. Also, we must cultivate God's gift of imagination. This might be a bit of a surprise. But think about this. We, we just read um, 2 Corinthians 2.9 a, a bit ago. Again, 2 Corinthians 2.9 states, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul begs for us to exercise our imagination, stretching them to capacities not yet achieved. He's giving us an implicit challenge here to engage our imaginations on a quest to imagine the grandeur of this absolutely incomparable weight of glory that awaits the redeemed. Of course, our imaginations must be governed by the Bible and the truths in it. But these two, biblical truths and a biblical-governed imagination, are a powerful means by which hope and joy in the present world are secured. Sometimes when I'm uh, just out and about, um, the weather really will help me in this endeavor. Um, If you're out on a, a, a cloudless, sunny day, and you look up, and you squint, because the sun's really, really bright, and you can't look right at it. It can give you fodder for 
imagining what it might be to look at the God who dwells in unapproachable light, whose face no man has seen, whose face the angels have to cover their faces before because of his holiness. If there's a cloudy day, everything can be used for, for good, I suppose. If there's a cloudy day, you see a, loud, or a large superstorm um, covering the, the western sun, and you know that a big storm is approaching. Try to imagine what the, the Bible purports, that Jesus will come with clouds in the second coming, and he will bring salvation for you. These are real realities that we struggle to put teeth to, but, but via our imagination, they can maybe become a little bit more real in our lives. When you experience physical pain, resolve like Jonathan Edwards did to think of the pains of eternal judgment and the good God who spared you from them. When you take a stroll on the happiest of days when nothing more could be going better for you, think of how that joy will be eclipsed by endless days in the presence of God in the new Jerusalem. Everything that we're given here in the visible age, before this age to come, I shouldn't say that, the next age will be a visible one as well, but in this age, Everything in this age can be used as ammunition to imagine the glories of that which we can't see. Finally, we can pursue this eternal weight of glory through prayer. And Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, stated that praying is the goal or the end of preaching, so this is fitting. Compelling others to know the unseen God to talk to him as though he actually exists is our goal here today. Through prayer, we who are in the shadowlands of reality peer into the radiance of God's holy throne room that James just read about earlier today. Through Christ's intercession for us, we enter a temple not made by hands, but the true, di- uh, the true dwelling of the living God. Lewis commented that the moment of prayer for him was the reawakened awareness that this real world and real self are very far from being rock-bottom realities. There are deeper, more significant realities. The realities that give weight to the glories yet to be experienced for you and I are best known in conversation with God. For it is in prayer that we think his thoughts after him. It is through talking with God that we can better understand the world around us, to better become, uh, or to become better parents, better employees, better citizens, and better spouses, pointing others to an absolutely incomparable weight of glory that awaits the redeemed. So in conclusion, when this next week comes to you, When friends betray you, when bank accounts fail, when the government continues to be shut down, take heart, for these things are transient, but the promises extended to us 
in the gospel are eternal, are eternal and therefore ultimate. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ in his second coming. Place your ultimate expectation in the God of the gospel, and he will reward you with an absolutely incomparable weight of glory that cannot be taken from you, that will give you great joy and hope. Let's pray.